and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone here. Um, We're going to do something a little bit different before we get to our time of preaching today. We like to change things up on you. Let me read something. This is from the ESV. If you want to turn to in your Bible, this is like the message before the message. Um, here it is, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Listen up as I read this. This saying is trustworthy. Paul writes, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, I tell you, this is the primary verses right here that we use as we look for shepherding elders. If you didn't know, our body is overseen by a group of men. Uh, They look for uh, ways to help the uh, people, the members of Bent Tree grow. They shepherd them. So that verse uh, where it says overseer, you could substitute pastor, you could substitute elder, you could substitute shepherd. We actually say shepherding elder in there just to differentiate between paid staff, but they are pastors in that sense. They can uh, marry and bury people, and they can minister to people, they can do church discipline, they can help you in your walk with Christ. Uh, so those guys are, are important. And not that they are above other people in the church in the sense that they are, look at me, I'm an elder, but they are servants at heart. So when we look for additional elders, the current shepherding elder body does this thing where we look for guys that are already shepherding. Does that make sense? And so we look for that and we, then we begin to meet with them and we say, uh, look, you can pull yourself out of this process or we can pull you out of this process or your wife can pull you out of this process. Uh, and we meet with her, we go through things and we say, look, here is what it's like to be an elder. It's to lay your life down in front of the church and say, I'm here to serve. And so we've got a group of guys that do that. I look through the audience and I see uh, faces that I love, guys that have done it uh, a short time and a long time. And, uh, and so this is awesome to see. Well, today we've identified two elder candidates They're not elders yet, so we're going to bring them up here in just a moment. We're going to pray for them. And here's what I'd like you to do is as you see these guys come up here, I'd like uh, for you to give us feedback on them. 
talk to your elder or, or to me or one of the other pastors and, and say, hey, this guy would be great. Or if you know a reason that they shouldn't serve. Look at that uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse. See if they fit all these uh, verses. We have met with them for months and, uh, and many hours of meetings and we feel like they do. So I'd like to bring up uh, Joe Grossman and his wife. Joe, if you would come on up. Let's give God a hand for them. And then Mike Foster and his wife, Beth, would you come up? And Joe's wife, yeah, give them a hand. Joe's wife, Heather, if you would, just come up right around here. It's a little intimidating getting up in front of people, isn't it? So you guys, hey, you guys, um, we're going to bring these guys back up. And on the 12th of December and commission them. If you've never been to a commissioning time, it's beautiful. It's inside the service just like this is. We'll have these guys sit down here and then all the elders will um, lay hands on them and pray for them and commission them as elders, assuming that God says yes on this. So they're not elders yet. They are candidates uh, for this. So you guys be praying for them. When you step out... (laughs) To serve the Lord, the attacks come. So we as a church, we're going to pray for them right now. And we're going to pray for a direction. Would you just stretch your hand out like this as just a, a, a visible sign of praying for them. God, I just lift these two guys up to you and their families. God, uh, we pray that you would place a hedge of protection around them. God, give our church wisdom. Give our members wisdom as they consider these guys. And God, if this is your will, would you just help us to be able to see that and commission them on December 12th, um, according to your will, God. Lord, I lift up their wives to you. God, I pray for Heather that you would give her wisdom and understanding. Uh, God, guide her. Um, God, help her to love and serve her husband and, uh, and to be able to give him uh, wisdom And God, I lift up the same thing with Beth. God, thank you for her. God, we ask that you give her uh, wisdom and understanding and and a love for her husband as well. Help her serve him. And God, I pray for these two guys that they would have favor in the ears of those people that uh, they speak to. Give them eyes to see spiritual things, ears to hear. And God, we don't take this lightly. If this is your will, we ask for... um, Just the thumbs up, God, that you would give us to say yes to these two men. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Let's give God a hand for these two families here. All right. Come on down. Well, thank you all. Thank you for doing that. This is a big step uh, to take on this stuff. And thank you guys for doing that. And when we started the church back, hey, we're coming up on our 14th anniversary in March. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. We'll do a big celebration. On our big 10th celebration uh, is when COVID uh, shut us down the next week. So um, we need to redo la- that big celebration because it was me and about six other people. So... Uh, I'm so glad that you guys are here today. If you would get your Bibles out, we're going to be in John chapter 
Hey, good job. John, John chapter 8, just a test. You were going, Paul, if you don't know, we're in trouble. Oh, baby, I can preach wherever we're at. Uh, so good to be with you. Um, before we jump in, let me say what an awesome time we had in the vision night last Sunday night. Was that amazing or what? Uh, that was a great time as we looked at our vision, just getting to share with you, the members of Bentry, what we feel like God calling us to in 2024. Man, that just sounds like some crazy future event date, doesn't it? 2024. We've received your input with a vision. We got to pray with the members here. We love to pray with the church, don't we? I just love that. Praying with the men and women our brothers and sisters, our family, for the rest of you who didn't get to attend that night, uh, and you, maybe you haven't become a member, join. Uh, we place a high value on that to say we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and we'll be putting the final touches on that 2024 vision. Uh, we'll be rolling that out at the first of the year. Let me just say there's just some incredible things that God has got planned for us, and I can't wait. As the world is falling apart, God is not falling apart. And God has some incredible things planned for his church. So um, I can't wait to see that, what God's going to do, not only in us and our sister churches as we work with them uh, to bring the gospel to northern Colorado. Uh, and if you're not a member yet, watch for the next starting point. Uh, that's that class that you take. It's a short class. Uh, and, and it'll show you what we value, what we believe, what our mission, vision, values are, all of that. Listen, if that mission and those core values align with what you hold dear as a believer, we would love for you to join us. Just become part of the family. As we hold membership at that high level, we think Scripture holds uh, membership at a high level. Uh, and for you visitors that are attending, we are so thankful for you that you are here. Uh, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for letting us have a little bit of family time there. Well, if you would, let's look at John 8, but let's pray first. One more time. We're a praying church. Let's just get our hearts ready. Would you bow your head or just close your eyes or get your heart ready? Settle your heart. God, that's our prayer. Would you just take away any distractions from us? Help us to be fully present in this time together. Lord, help us to be able to hear your word. And may your Holy Spirit just unpack those words for us. And God, my prayer is that you would make yourself real to the people in this room and those listening online through these words. Father, I pray that you would help us not to have the distractions on our mind from the previous week or the week to come or the worries. In fact, church, let's just take a moment as we just continue to pray in this attitude of prayer, just individually. I want to ask everyone here in the room or those listening online, check your heart. Examine yourself, your life. Is there any sin that has crept into your life. It's easy to do. And it happens to all of us. Is there any pride? Idolatry? How about some coveting? How about anger? Or unforgiveness? Huh. How about worry? Is there anything on your mind weighing you down? Let's just take a few moments to confess that just individually to God. Repent of that sin.
Take a moment, repent of that sin, turn away from it. God is full of grace and mercy. If you're in Christ Jesus, you've already been forgiven of those sins, but unconfessed sin interrupts our fellowship with God. So we want to, just as believers, just consciously turn from those sins. Let him take full control of every area of our lives. Oh, Father God, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for giving your son, Jesus, as a propitiation for our sin. We rest in that forgiveness. We live in it. God, have your way in our hearts and minds as we unpack your words here. Speak to us. It is in Jesus' precious name. All God's children said, amen. Well, for the last few weeks as we've been studying this passage uh, in John 8, we've been listening to Jesus teach about who he is as the Son of God and what that means to be a Christ follower. And we've been listening uh, on this this ongoing argument Jesus has been having between these Jewish leaders and, and, and Jesus as Jesus tries to teach the people and they keep trying to, the, uh, the leaders try to trap Jesus in his words and try to show him as a false Messiah. But that hasn't, that hasn't worked too well for these believers because what we've seen so far is that with each challenge these guys make, Jesus just uh, not only proves them wrong but shows even more how he is the son of God. It's like these guys can't win for losing uh, because everything they bring up in opposition to Jesus, Jesus just uses that thing to show that he really is the son of God. Even worse for these religious leaders and Pharisees is they end up looking really, really bad to the people they lead, the big crowd that they claim to rule over. Now, we're going to see that even more in the text today in coming weeks, but certainly this has been deep stuff that we've been talking about, but it's practical stuff that we can use in our life. Now, we're about to go into a new section of the chapter. I know it doesn't look like it, but if you look in your Bible, uh, starting with verse 30 and 31 there, you're going to notice a new level of intensity in the conversation of what Jesus is preaching about. It's that same setting. Jesus is in front of this large crowd, the common Jewish folks. We're talking about thousands because it's the feast of booths that they're celebrating. And right there in the crowd, these powerful men, these Pharisees, these other religious leaders are there. They want to arrest him. They literally have people there to arrest him. And last week I described this next passage is that we're just starting to get to the meat. And I know that sounds funny because it's been, it's been good stuff, hasn't it? What Jesus has been saying. There's this richness in what Jesus has been preaching about himself. And now we're getting to the apex of what he's saying in this passage. And now it gets even more rich and deep and whatever you want to use as a word to describe it. This is where it gets to. I've been looking forward to this section for quite some time. We're going to camp out here on this for a little bit. We'll take our time walking through it. Make sure we understand it. So Jesus has just said all this stuff as he said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. You remember those things? And all this crowd of Jewish common folk as they're listening in, then this is where we left off last time is verse 30. 
As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now this does not mean that they were necessarily born again at this point. They believed. It means that many of them were understanding what Jesus was saying and maybe had a mental picture of it. We know that this is the case because of what Jesus says next to the people that had started to believe, at least at this mental ascent level. Jesus was teaching so compellingly that even without the full understanding of Jesus going to the cross yet as a sacrifice for their sins and his resurrection from the dead, they began to believe. Like we said, when we were together last time, before something makes it into your heart, it's got to make it into your head. It's got to go into your mind first. Now, I have no doubt that some of these Jewish folks would become Christ followers on the day of Pentecost, just about seven months from this time, but just not right now. They are starting to believe. Let me make that clear. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, realizes that they are believing. So look at what Jesus is telling them. He says in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, believed him, If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, there's just so much here. Let's make sure we understand all of this in all of its facets. Verse 32 is one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible. In fact, I've heard this verse quoted by business professionals, presidents, political activists, even motivational speakers. Uh, What's so strange to me is they almost never know, A, who said it, or B, why he said it, or C, what its true meaning is. They're just clueless on it. But it sounds good, doesn't it? Like they, they probably didn't know that Jesus is the one who actually said it. And most certainly they didn't know its meaning. So let's try to unpack this and see if we can get this down. Jesus is saying, you'll know when you have saving faith. He says, if or when you abide in my word. He says, then you will know that you are truly my disciples if you abide in my word. And when you know that, you will know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. This sounds so simple on one hand, and yet we make it so difficult. So let's see if we can break it down to the bare essentials, the minimum uh, that we need to know to start out. We'll do this first by asking two important questions here. One, what is the truth Jesus is referring to? What is that truth? And second, what will this truth, whatever it is, set us free from? Let me say it again. What is the truth Jesus is referring to? And second, what will that truth, assuming we can know it, set us free from? You got it? So let's keep those two questions in our mind as we think through this. That this is where we have to pay particular focus because From here until the very end of the chapter, Jesus is going to use this language of being set free. So go very basic with me. If we can be free, what does it mean? It means that we are held captive by something or someone. Does it not? What is Jesus saying the truth is will set us free from? A second question. 
Well, from the slavery of sin and death that holds every person captive until Jesus sets us free from that slavery. Until he sets us free from captivity. Now, here's the thing. Most people don't realize they're in slavery to sin. They don't realize that they're in prison. Many of us didn't realize that. I would think that most people would argue that they are not in slavery to sin. They are actually free people actually to make a choice to follow Jesus or not. Because think about slavery or imprisonment. Don't you get this picture of chains around your ankles, around your your wrist, around your neck, around your waist? Chains, maybe you're in a prison cell or a dungeon, you're a slave. Most people, I would argue, don't think of sin that way as a master. Most people would say they're pretty good guys, pretty good girls. Why is that? I mean, I'm talking about outside the church. Because a lot of sin doesn't feel like imprisonment, does it? At least at first. I would argue most sin has a, well, a pleasure factor involved. I know this is not news to any of you that wrestle with sin. Uh, me either. Don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying sin is okay. I'm just saying it's got a pleasure piece to it. But I'm saying there is an element, dare we say fun or relief, In a pleasure of most every sin. At minimum, sin has the promise of pleasure or relief. It's the thing inside of sin that attacks us, right? I mean, think about this. Why do we ever sin? Why do we break God's law to begin with? Because sin says, you are in control. You need to make the one making the de- be the one making the decisions, right? And that sounds pretty good to us. You are the decider. On the surface, that sounds like freedom. The word, um, that word sin, it doesn't ring like it used to because people go, I don't know, sin sounds okay to me. The world would say it like this. That we are the captain of our own ship. That the truth is inside of you and you need to follow your desires in your heart until they are fulfilled and then you'll be happy. That, that's the last stanza, by the way, of the poem Invictus, right? William Henry Henley. It matters not how straight the gate How charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the theme song of progressive secularism in our modern age, is it not? You're the boss. You make the decision. So many in the church have decided, oh, we're the boss. We're sovereign. This is, this is what we see in the world, that we get to decide what we want to do, when we want it, how we want it. What's crazy is that sin actually presents itself as freedom. Freedom to do what I want to do, what I really desire, to fulfill everything I've ever wanted. That's true freedom. Temptation or allure of sin can sound pretty good to us in the moment. That's why we're called, we call it temptation. See if temptation works this way in your life. You have a problem, you know right away how to handle that problem. 
But temptation to sin presents itself as a little shortcut so you can get there easier. To get the same results that you know you need to do, but with less hassle, less work, and less time. How is that not a good thing? For instance, say there's something you want to buy, but you don't have enough money to buy it. The temptation comes, well, I could go for that discount. You know which discount I'm talking about? The five-finger one. Five-finger discount, you just put it aside. Yo, it's a big store. Nobody will know that I steal it. Steal it. Let me give you an example. Uh, Tibble's Grocery Store, uh, Wiley, Texas. Uh, my older brother is the only one that will know what I'm talking about. It was a massive grocery store to an eight-year-old. I think it had six aisles. Um, and it had that thing, if you're going down the aisle and someone's coming the other way, you were in trouble. You know, because it couldn't pass there until they expanded it. It was a massive expansion. I think it went to 10 aisles then. Um, and, and because I'm the last of six kids and we always had a couple of foster brothers and sisters living with us. And we always had two baskets. Mama would push the one basket. And since I was the baby still at home, I remember I was about five, six years old. And I was pushing the other basket behind and it was full. Man, we had like six gallons of milk every week. And I remember getting to the checkout and it was always a battle because they put the candy right there at my height. And I got to tell you, I love candy. I still love candy. And so I remember, I said, Mom, can I have some of this candy? And she said, and I said, Mama, I never called her Mom. Mama, can I have some of this candy? No, you can't have candy. Okay, I want candy. I have no money. My mom's right there. Mr. Davis is checking us out. I know him. He can't see me. Mom can't see me. I'm behind two carts. Grab it and put it in my pocket. Grab it and put it in my pocket. Did I know that was wrong at five, six years old? Yeah, I felt so guilty when I got home. But the candy tasted good. <laughs> it wasn't until I was about 30 years old I confessed that to my mom. There was a temptation to sin even in my little child's heart. Uh, but temptation to sin doesn't just stop there, does it? Boy, that just starts. So say there's something that you're embarrassed about. You don't want to tell uh, someone that uh, you screwed something up. The, the truth of the situation, it would just be more difficult to explain the truth. And right away, you're put in an awkward position if you tell the truth. If you're the one that lost the file or didn't get the work done, what's the temptation? Just tell a quick lie. No one will know. Sin. Or how about this one? You want to make yourself look better to someone, maybe an employer. You, you pad your resume. I did this with BB when we first met, by the way. I padded my resume. Uh, we were standing in line, get this, to see Ghostbusters. Anybody remember the first one? The Ghostbusters, we were in line at Ghostbusters, and I had met her before, and I was kind of trying to impress her, and I turned around. She's gorgeous. She was gorgeous then, too. And I was talking to her, 
And I, I told her that I was uh, going to be a backup singer for Amy Grant that next summer. <laughs> that, was, that was a hoped thing, but not, in fact, entirely true. Now, I had met Amy Grant after a concert, before a concert. And so I had translated that, and I just puffed it up. What was that? What was that? That was a lie. Why? I wanted to impress her. I wanted to impress her. All right, let's talk about the elephant in the room here. Lust. Uh, Sexual sin. As adults, we have these desires, these wants. The world tells us, just fulfill those desires. These are base desires. The desire, desire starts in our head and then moves into action. The world tells us because you desire those things, it must be okay. Now here's how these temptations and sin go together. You'll notice that any sin, any temptation to sin really revolves around what? Our desires What's inside of us? The desire of a fallen nature corrupted by original sin. The main thing we don't desire is God. When we talk about reformed doctrine and radical depravity or what some old theologians call total depravity, that doesn't mean that we are as evil as we possibly could be. Radical depravity that all our desires have been tainted, corrupted by sin, at least to a certain extent. That's what Jesus is talking about that we are enslaved to. Are you with me? He says, you are a slave to sin. He's talking to all this crowd, to these sinful desires of your heart and mind. You're born into it. I mean, even the very best desires that we have are tainted. To be the perfect spouse, the perfect mom, the perfect dad, the perfect pastor. To be a friend to someone or to give help to someone who desperately needs help. Even those very good things are not totally pure, are they? They're tainted by sin. Because we are tainted by sin. That's what Jesus is referring to in our bondage to sin. Our desires at the most basic level of us have us corrupted by sin. That we find ourselves locked in original sin. That we are all born into this fallen world. We have a poison in us. Sin. You see, sin and temptation play off of our natural Good desires, but they're tainted, so they are sinful. We want stuff. We desire stuff. And what's confusing to us is a lot of the stuff feels really good, at least for a season. The candy was excellent. I still remember what it was. It was cinnamon. And it had this wonderful flavor called hot tamales. Bibi will tell you, I still love hot tamales. Sin can be pleasurable because it's based on things, look, 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 that God created for our enjoyment, but our desires have corrupted those things in the fall if we take part in them incorrectly. We are quite, quite literally, not figuratively, but literally born into sin. 
Now, we know the stories, people who got caught up into sin, and they knew they were in bondage. I know brothers and sisters in this room, uh, I, I have walked with you through that. that. That little set of drinks there just to take the edge off turns into a functionally drunk or someone who can't get off the floor. The kid who smokes a little bit of marijuana who becomes strung out on harder drugs or becomes schizophrenic. Or someone who thinks of flirting with someone who's not their spouse won't hurt anything, but it shipwrecks their marriage. Maybe we have even experienced that stuff ourselves. Listen to me. Every one of us have experienced those base desires tainted by sin. Maybe something like that is happening to you right now and I don't have to convince you that you're a slave because you know firsthand that thing's got you. You're in handcuffs. No, it's behind your back and your feet are cuffed. You're laying face down. You can't move because it's there. Even though you might sense that you are in bondage though, before we are brought to life through faith in Christ, we are in sin. Jesus says we are in bondage to sin. So when Jesus is saying this in verse 31, he says that you can be set free. Praise God. Well, let's look at it again. Remember, what does Jesus say? Remember, Jesus is talking to these that are starting to believe, at least in this initial phase of believing. Here it is in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What Jesus is doing here is describing the marks of genuine faith. Real followers of Christ. This is so important you get this. This is a long one, but write this down. Continuing to follow Jesus' word is not a condition of true discipleship. It is a manifestation of it. I'll give you some time. Continuing to follow Jesus' word is not a condition of discipleship. It is a manifestation of it. In other words, abiding in his word doesn't cause salvation. That's a work of God and God alone. But it is a manifestation of it. Jesus is saying this is one of those true marks of being a follower of him. That we follow what the Bible says. And even though some people don't like to talk about the Old Testament, it actually is talking about the Old Testament as well. As opposed to just someone who temporarily is impressed by Jesus' words, like this crowd. Because at this point, some in the crowd have started to believe they, they've not placed their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's a different set of words that they are in Christ. They've started to believe. And this is, they're just kind of impressed with what Jesus is saying. They go, yeah, yeah. In a sense, what Jesus is saying is that's not how you determine if you're free. Uh, you determine if you're free by if you're abiding in me. Now let's talk about the word abide for just a moment. We're going to unpack this a little bit more next week. I think the Christian Standard Bible, if you're using that, uses the word, if you continue in my word, that's okay too. But let's look at the word abide. The Greek word for abide behind us is minnow, like the little fish. It doesn't mean the little fish. But here it is, minnow, 
abide, which means remain, stay, or reside. Remain, stay, or abide. And we're going to look at this a lot more, but there's tons here. Abide, minnow, which means remain, stay, or reside. I like the word reside there. You know, it's, you got your easy chair. This is where I reside. Because if it gets at what Jesus is saying to us, that you live, that you make your home and my word. He's saying, if you do that, if you make your life about my word, then you will know that you are my disciples, a true disciple, a real believer. And it is that living, that abiding, residing in my word as a true disciple that will know the truth and then the truth will set us free. Now, don't let me lose you here. We already know that everyone, before they are saved by Jesus, is guilty of sin. Right? We know that. That's the bondage that Jesus is saying the truth will set us free from. So get this down. How are we set free from sin? How are we set free from sin? Two big ways. You need to understand this. The first way that we are set free from sin as believers in Christ Jesus is that we are justified. Now, if you've never heard this before, you need to grab a hold of this. At our salvation, we are justified before God, meaning we are declared righteous in a legal sense. At our salvation, we are justified before God, meaning we are declared righteous in a legal sense. Now, when we are born again, Jesus' words, or you could say we are given life, we regenerated by Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, at the direction of God the Father, we are justified before God. Other ways to say that same thing is that we are made right with God. We are reconciled to God. We have peace with God because we are no longer an enemy of God. Before we are justified, we are enemies of God. I know that sounds wrong. Not many churches say that stuff. But listen to the Apostle Paul, what he says in Romans 8, 7, and 8. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. We are enemies of God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, this goes against what the world will tell you in a lot of churches that don't know what the Bible says or they don't want you to know what the Bible says. They will say something like this. Before you are saved, Jesus is your friend. And if you'll just let him in, if you'll just listen to him a little bit, then you can be friends with Jesus too. He wants to be your friend. Like if you will be nice to God, if you believe in him, like kind of like Santa Claus, he will be nice to you. But that's not what scripture states. And it's not even close. Listen to how the apostle Paul puts it in Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, look at that, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When were we reconciled? When we were enemies, look, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, do you get what Paul's saying here? 
It's while we are enemies of God we are saved, called to life. It's not necessarily when we realize it and convert. That's part of it. We'll get to that. That when we are regenerated, born from above, made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, we move from being an enemy, check this out, an enemy of God, to a child of God. Woo! It's not that we decided to be friends with God. It's why we are enemies that we are called to life. Think about the Apostle Paul as he's riding with his posse to go arrest Christians, to have them tortured and killed, put in jail. For them following Christ, this is before Paul is a Christian, you don't get much more being an enemy of Christ than you did with Paul. And yet we see Jesus save him. He is justified. He is saved. And while Paul, what is Paul's response? He then, he then repents of his sin. His life, he converts teams. His life's focus and mission changes to Christ's teaching becomes the center of his life. The same way we are sin, we are declared righteous. We are brought to life, regenerated. Our sins are washed away. We are no longer held responsible for our sin. How do we know that that has happened? How do we know? Because when we hear the gospel message of Jesus' death in our place, when we see the... When we see the depravity of our own heart that we cry out and ask for forgiveness and mercy. Do you see? When we repent of our sins, that simply means we turn from them. We stop doing those sins. We stop our unbelief. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. We convert We tell people we are now Christ followers and that we have trusted Jesus as our Savior. We get baptized as a public demonstration of our faith that we belong to the King. Now get this. That is conversion. Christians get that confused with our regeneration. Regeneration happens first. Write this down. Conversion is the result of our being justified with God, not a cause of it. This is Reformed doctrine right here. Conversion is the result of our being justified with God, not a cause of it. Think through what we just said about being set free from sin. First, we said we are justified, right? Declared Declared righteous. It's a legal term. When we are born again, or you could say regenerated, brought to life spiritually with God, we are justified. Meaning that we are declared righteous, okay? It's that legal declaration. Not that we deserve it anyway, but that it was given to us by grace. Then we repent. We convert. Our conversion is that change we make in our life. We do it. Now, is justification, if justification is the first of the two ways we're set free, what is the second way we are set free from the chains? Remember, there are two ways. 
Because think about it, if justification is our being declared righteous when we're an enemy of God, that Jesus has taken our sin on his back, that he has paid for our sin on the cross with his death, then he has given us his righteousness. That's good. Praise God. But let's admit that when we are first saved, we're not real good at following what the Bible says. We still want to sin. Because although we are declared sinless, we have the righteousness of Jesus, praise God. But we still like to sin. Our desires still messed up, aren't they? Everybody's worried like, I'm, I'm worried if I go yes or no. I don't know. Our desires are still messed up. Amen? Amen. Mine are. All those temptations are still there. But this brings up a second way that Jesus sets us free from the bondage of sin. Oh, please get this. At our salvation, we are sanctified before God. Meaning we are being made new every day as we follow Jesus by abiding in his word. Now let me, let me say that again. At our salvation, we are sanctified before God. Meaning we are being made new every day as we follow Jesus by abiding in his word. I'll leave it up. We've learned from our brother Paul, the apostle Paul. We've leaned on him to help give us this deep, uh, to grow deep, to go deep, go deep, to grow deep. And Paul can help us again here in Romans 8. Now, before I read it, let me tell you a few things to be watching for, listening for as we get ready. One, Paul is going to remind Christians that the reason we are born again is that we are given life by the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity. We're given that. It's not that we get saved and then get the Spirit. No, 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 no. Back in John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that it is the Spirit who gives life The flesh is absolutely no help at all. But another thing to be listening for is that the Holy Spirit begins then to act in the believer's life by helping them start to put to death the habits of sin. Let's let's read it now. Listen closely to this process of sanctification that goes on in the life of every believer. Here it is, Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, notice our little s compared to the big s, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. God willing, someday we'll start preaching through the book of Romans. Jesus may come back first. Let's hope. But do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying about sanctification? That the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is active and working inside the life of every believer 
as we live life, as we fight against sin, the Holy Spirit is pointing out sin in our life, helping us to repent. We fight against sin. Here's the thing I want us to see. Justification occurs when we are regenerated. We're forgiven, we're saved by the Holy Spirit. Justification occurs when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Sanctification also occurs and continues until we are finally home in heaven. Some of you need to study this when you get home because this is what's tripping you up about life. Justification occurs when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Sanctification also occurs when we're saved and continues until we are finally home in heaven. This is one of the most wonderful things that we can talk about in following Christ Jesus until the end of our days. That we are never perfect on this side of heaven. But we are being made new as we abide, as we reside in Christ's words, as we live in Christ's words. The Holy Spirit is at work. Here's the thing I want us to remember. Our justification is monergistic. Monergistic. Meaning it is a work of God alone. We are no help at all. You will not find a verse in scripture that says we help God in our salvation. It simply does not exist. We are no help at all. The flesh is no help at all. Mono means one doing the work. Remember, we are enemies when we're first saved. We couldn't help them. We're simply declared righteous by God himself. By our saint, but our sanctification is, look, synergistic. Meaning that it is a work of God at work in us as we live. Synergism, though, is one working with someone together. And that is exactly what happens at our conversion. It's why people get uh, confused. They think conversion is what saves me. I start working and then God sees it. I get saved. Wrong. We are constantly repenting this in this life as we are led by God. Our conversion is just the first time. What does that look like? To live a holy life according to what the Bible teaches. That's why I beg you to make this a part of your life. Let me ask a question. Don't answer it out loud. Do you lose your salvation when you sin the next time after you're saved? Now you can say, no. Like, do we get resaved, rejustified each time we sin? And if you sin too much, do you? Do you lose your salvation? No. Remember Jesus' words in John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You have been set free from sin. And now, can we get tangled with sin as Christians and, and mess up our lives? You bet, you bet. I'm a poster child for that. If you're like me, you can let simple sin get out of hand. And sin, even though you are forgiven of it eternally, can seriously mess up your life. You can, you can kill your marriage. Sin can destroy your health. 
Sin can give you addictions. Sin can hurt many of the people some of the, in your life, some of the ones you love the most. Sin can damage your church. For a true believer, you can slip into sin so easily if you're not careful, if you're not repenting daily. It's why we started our time with prayer like we did. It's why you hear me or one of the other pastor shepherding elders or pastors up here reminding us all the time, let's repent of our sins. Don't let sin. What sin has crept into your life? What is it? Repent of it. In my opinion, the worst thing that sin does in a believer's life is that, listen to me, it limits or even stops their growing closer to God in their spiritual maturity. Here's a saying that you should remember from the great Puritan preacher and theologian, John Owen. Gotta love John Owen. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, some have tried to make that, be killing everyone else's sin because it'll make you look good. That's not what it says. It will be killing the relationships, the lives of the people you love most. Look now at verse 33 of John 8. Jesus laid some serious truth on them. Listen to how they respond. Verse 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, once again, The Jews demonstrate, the Jews, this is the leaders, they demonstrate that they are operating on a purely temporal basis, whereas Jesus is speaking of kingdom matters. But they do ask an important question. How is it that you will say you will become free? Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, he says, if you abide in my word, You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now think about it. Satan's accusation against you because of your sin no longer has legal standing. The case against you has been decided and you have been justified. All Satan can do is to try to make you feel like you're not saved by reminding you of your past. But who are you going to believe? Satan or Jesus? The one who died for you or the one who is accusing you? I'm going to, I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. Because besides Satan has only lied to me ever my entire life. Has Jesus ever lied to you? No. All right. If you are in Christ, your sins have been paid for on the cross. You have been justified, made right with God. You are a child of the king. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you have been set free. The truth has set you free. So when you hear those accusations from your past, or you remember them, Jesus has paid my sin on the cross. Past sin, present sin, even future sin. And with our sanctification, as the Holy Spirit is remaking us, we can look into a new day, each and every day, and go, thank you for your grace. 
Listen to what the Apostle John tells the believers about our lives following Christ Jesus. This is our life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We've begun to believe it. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he what? First loved us. Oh, what a beautiful thing. We can trust God. We can follow Jesus, however imperfectly. That's me too. All the way to the, the return of Jesus or our death. That doesn't mean our lives are easy, does it? In fact, Jesus promises they will be hard. We will suffer, he says. But God will use that suffering to shape and to mold us into the Christ followers. He uses our suffering for our good His glory. Now let me leave us with a couple of short verses that talk about our freedom and being made new. The first one, God speaks to his people. Listen to the promise he gives them if they follow him. Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. God says through the prophet, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, notice the capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, that verse is for you if you are a Christ follower because you've been made one of God's own. He will not leave you the way you are. He will make you new. And sometimes that process, painful, difficult. And yet we trust that even when we can't see that he is making us new, we can rest in the fact that he will even use that hurt that you're going through to shape and mold us. But it's those hard days, right? It's the hard days. You feel that you can't go on another step. Here's a verse to remember. Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's an old song. That's an old song. Let me sing it for us. Join in if you know it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never Come to an end. They are new every morning. New every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Great is your faithfulness. Sing it with me. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness. That when we were willing to spit in your face, to curse your name, to follow our own sinful desires, that you called us to life. By your spirit, through the work of your son on the cross and his resurrection. Thank you for saving us. God, I pray that if there are people right now that don't know you, they've started to believe that it would move from their mind into their heart. And that they would grasp that salvation that they would convert that they would say I will make you mine I will live for you Jesus you will be my savior if that's you just pray this prayer you see you've been saved if you believe but say God I repent of my sin." I repent of not believing Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I pray that you would help me to follow Jesus with all my heart. Thank you for your forgiveness. Show me how to follow you, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.